Hey, everybody. I'm Amadali Akbar, and this is See Something, Say Something, the BuzzFeed podcast where we drink chai, tell stories, and talk about being Muslim in America. It's Wednesday morning, and uh, we all woke up to the news that Donald Trump has been elected president. If you see something, you better, you better say something. Nothing at all, nothing at all. We have two guests in the studio with us right now. We have another one who is covering Hillary, and she will be coming in right in the middle. And uh, we're going to talk about the election and how it feels. But also, I want to talk to my guests about um, their usage of the Internet, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. They've done like a really amazing job holding up a light to complicate the way Muslims are portrayed within the community and to uh, non-Muslims. So first we have Donna Austin. She's a writer, speaker, and PhD candidate at Rutgers in anthropology. Her dissertation is on black Muslim activists in the era of Black Lives Matter, and she's the creator of the Black Muslim Ramadan hashtag, which we'll be talking about later. Hey, Donna, how are you doing? I'm fine, Ahmed. How are you? Assalamualaikum. Good to hear you. Waalaikum <laughs> salam. Um, and then we have Hin Maki. She's a writer, interfaith activist, and founder at Side Entrance, which is a blog on Tumblr that highlights the poor access or maintenance and also successes of women's sections at mosques, which we'll also hopefully get to. Hey, Hind. Hey, good morning. Assalamualaikum. <laughs> and then our last guest is not here. It's Sara Yassin. Uh, she's a Palestinian-American writer and the lead editor of News Curation at BuzzFeed New York. Obviously, we expected the results to be called last night. So she's actually covering Hillary's speech and she's going to run in here and join us, hopefully. So um, usually at the beginning of every episode, we ask our guests what we're thinking about. But considering such a huge moment just happened with the election, we obviously have to talk about it. So I think we should just have like a sort of group discussion. Um, I wanted to hear what was uh, your experience, Hind and Donna, of watching the coverage last night. Um, why don't we start with you, Donna? Yeah, um, so I was, I was try actually trying to get some work done <laughs> um, in the midst of all of that. So I was kind of writing and watching on my laptop um, as the results started to unfold, you know, initially not really panicking because, of course, there's a lot of country left, you know. But as the night wore on, I mean, it just became more and more unlikely that Trump would lose. And um, my emotional state just transformed, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard to kind of describe. I mean, it's, it's sh some shock, right? But just an overwhelming sense of uncertainty about what's coming next, um, you know, given the extreme uh, polarization, um, the, the rhetoric that's been, you know, completely... Um, unprofessional and disturbing, you know, and to have, you know, a year or more of just kind of constant vitriol right. end and, and culminate in this moment. Where it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better, you know? Like, no, no, funny. I, no, I don't think so. I had written all these notes for Clinton where I was like, well, if Clinton won, where I was, you know, thinking about, you know, how did you guys experience it? How did you keep sane? in the past tense, <laughs> you know, and for right. Trump, it was just sort of like, I guess we'll just be in the studio and scream about it for an hour because what else is there? You know, it's, there's so much uncertainty um, about what he's going to be like as a president um, and what that's going to mean for people of color, Muslims, women, so many 
uh, groups in the U.S. Can, I'd like to hear from him too. Like, him, how did you experience the uh, election? Yeah, so uh, I'm I'm in the central time zone, so I was actually still phone banking for people mm. in Arizona and the in the you know mountain and the Pacific time zones when some of the eastern states started to come in. And I, you know, like Donna, I I began to feel just sort of immediately like a sense of dread. Um, Trump had his lead from the beginning and and he never let go of it. And, you know, the last several days, you know, there was a lot of excitement. Um, You know, a lot of the people that I was uh, working with, not just in the national election, but also in, you know, the local elections here in in Illinois, we had a pretty uh, contested uh, senatorial race. And the idea of perhaps the Democrats would be able to um, quote unquote, take back the Senate. Um, you know, <laughs> hey, at least we did that. Illinois did. Uh, oh, did Illinois, right, now, right. Uh, you know, we do have a, a Democrat taking back Barack Obama's old seat. But, um, you know, I, I was watching, I was switching between PBS and uh, Al Jazeera English. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the world market's plunging, you know, like yeah. the the shock on, you know, a lot of our, you know, foreign colleagues, you're just saying, how how can this happen, you know, in America? I've been receiving emails and text messages and phone calls and, you know, commiserations from friends across uh, the world. You know, the first message I received this morning when I woke up was from a friend of mine from college from Malaysia, you know, sending essentially condolences, but also saying that, inshallah, America will will, will survive hmm. and that the goodness of the Americans that he knew yeah, um, is the goodness that well. he will remember. But you know, and that, that was a nice message to to wake up to. Um, it was also really great to hear, you know, messages from my Christian friends, from, you know, uh, one of my gay Jewish friends from college again, you know, saying, listen, we, we stand in solidarity with each other. You know, today we might <laughs> grieve, but, um, you know, this is not, you know, what I want to say is this is this is a shock to yeah. Muslim communities, to Latinos, to African-Americans, to women. But we're not alone. Um, you know, th- Trump's rhetoric, like Donna was alluding to from literally from day one, was alienating of anyone who was not essentially, uh, you know, cis, gender, white, male, and the women who love them and and, and will and will well, vote for them regardless of what right. the rest of America needs. And I do I did want to say this too. What I was thinking about tomorrow uh, yesterday as I was watching the election um, kind of unfold was: Do you guys remember when Keith Ellison was on uh, ABC with uh, George Stephanopoulos last year? All I want to say is that anybody. Uh, well, from the Democratic side of the fence, who who uh, thinks that who's who's terrified of the possibility of, of of President Trump, better vote, better get active, better get involved, because this man has got some uh, momentum, and uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket next. <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> Sorry right, to laugh. Okay. Next they literally on. laughed in his face. I mean, that was like their laughter was haunting me. George Stephanopoulos's laughter was haunting me last night. Yeah. I think, you know, there's that broad thing, too, of, you know, the whole country and what it means for every single group, uh, like person of color group or women and all the groups, you know, you've sort of 
pointed out, but there's also the individual (laughs) safety element I'm hearing a lot of from people. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had a lot of people tell me that, uh, you know, I had one of my best friends tell me that, you know, her mother wears hijab in Michigan and she's just so worried about her mother, you know, and and that there's all these tweets out there um, for about people, families having that conversation that happened after 9-11 where people are are worried about being visibly Muslim. Um, and, you know, that is a feeling that I think has always been there, but it's it feels like it's bringing up a lot of those feelings again. Um, we're actually going to be joined by Sara Yassin, who is a trooper. I mean, she actually, I'm going to let her tell, talk about her experience of the election. She works at BuzzFeed New York. Hey, guys. Hey, Sara. Hey. She just was covering the um, Hillary Clinton uh, concession speech that literally just happened while we were in the studio. I caught about the first 10 minutes of it. Uh, Sara, tell us, how did you experience that? You were in the newsroom last night, so... What was the feeling like and what was it like for you personally? So the past 24 hours are kind of a blur right now. Um, I got into the office at about noon Eastern to cover this. And you've been working since, basically, besides... Yeah, like apart from a brief nap on a couch (laughs) um, in the office, and then I went to the gym and I... Oh, good. Self-care. Yeah, I talked to an elliptical about my feelings. Um, (laughs) I mean, it was incredible to be in the middle of the newsroom as a journalist to watch like the show unfold and watch the way that we were covering it. And that was really great. And, you know, this was my first time covering a U.S. election. And so um, just watching the way we were making calls and that kind of thing was really great. Um, I think as far as the end result goes, you know, it's the thing that's been kind of running through my head for the past few hours is, you know, you know, I'm I'm not religious. And I mean, I grew up in a Muslim family um, and I don't, you know, I don't really practice, but, you know, how, how do you cover an election, you know, as a journalist who comes from a Muslim background when you feel like your community is up for debate, your family's up Mm. for debate, your identity is up for debate? Um, You know, how, what does it mean to be unbiased and to be neutral um, in a conversation like that? And I felt that question, you know, loudly throughout a lot of this election, but especially last night and this morning, it became the most important question in my mind. So let's 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 talk about that. Let's talk about the Muslim role in the election and thinking about how much it's been central. It really feels like it's always popped up. Like I remember even in the 2000 uh, election, uh, there was a lot of discussion about like secret evidence and keeping Muslims uh, detained, even in those days in 2000. So I always feel like Muslims were part of the discussion in some way with regards to terrorism or, you know, sort of like the issues of surveillance in the community that the government has had such like there's been a lot of pushback from Muslim Americans, obviously, <laughs> for good reason. And but really with this election, it really felt like both campaigns really put Muslims like in such a central position like they've never been before. How did you guys feel about the way both campaigns, not just the Trump campaign, but also the Clinton campaign played a role uh, in including Muslims in the narrative? Um, Donna, how about we start with you? Um, I mean, I wasn't particularly, to be quite honest with you, I wasn't particularly pleased with the way either campaign handled Muslims. Um, for for the most part, I mean, Trump's rhetoric was certainly more incendiary. Um, right. However, 
neither campaign was able to talk about and conceptualize and address Muslim concerns and Muslim people um, outside of a security context. I mean, Clinton, you know, reiterated this um, in debates and, you know, um, over and over again on the campaign trail um, when asked questions or when the question of Islamophobia or Muslims comes up, there's this sense of like, oh, well, we need the good Muslims to be on the front lines against terrorism. And it's like, what? Like, you know, so um, this sense that Muslims are, you know, only worthy of protection if we're like unofficial law enforcement enforcement personnel or something like it's just you know and it frames like our entire existence and our entire range of issues around you know this kind of security status um or security risk status you know we we never get to talk about what what our positions might be on educational policy or environmental policy or um you know or infrastructure even khizr khan who was their big sort of like a lot of people were calling him sort of their biggest weapon <laughs> against Trump. And right, the right, reason yeah, that was right. seen as so powerful is because he was tied into the security context in the sense that this is a, this is a family who's patriotic, which they, you know, right. obviously sacrificed right. so much for the United States, clearly. Like that was, a, they sacrificed their, their child. And, you know, of course, Khizr Khan had his own perspective on it. But it was interesting how that was sort of seen as so useful for the Clinton campaign that they could find a, you know, sort of patriotic, you know, like stereotypically almost um, uh, Muslim father. And it was it, it like it, it I was genuinely powerful, but it was interesting that that was like the main way. Like you said, every time Clinton mentioned uh, Muslims, it was only within the context of secure, of um, what people call the countering violent extremism uh, strategy. I think that watching both of these campaigns unfold, um, it was a running theme that they did not seem to see it as being important to actually reach out to the Muslim community in a deeper way, right. which we saw Bernie Sanders do that. So Bernie Sanders actually did reach out to the Muslim community. In and he a, won Michigan and Dearborn. Uh, there was a big story about that, that he had won Dearborn very hand, like in a pretty strong fashion. Yeah. And which I, is a Muslim community, if you don't know Dearborn. You know, <laughs> he's like one of the biggest Arab populations yeah. outside of the Middle East. I mean, I, I think that you know, there there is this issue where we only talk about Muslims, you know, as, as you guys were saying, like, we only talk about Muslims in these security contexts. And this was something that came up constantly throughout the election from Muslim critics. I think the underlying thing with that is when you talk about, like, let's say I'm from North Carolina, where, you know, I, I do, you know, I do know people who probably voted for Trump. These people don't know Muslims and they only know to be afraid of Muslims. And I think it says something that, you know, the conversations that we have about Muslims are things to do with national security and and safety. And I think we do need to dig into why, why are candidates so afraid of Muslims? Mm -hmm. And how about you? Yeah, I I agree with both Donna and uh, Sarah. And I agree that Muslims were really spoken of um, within the national security framework with both campaigns. Uh, It was much more in your face with Trump. With Clinton, it was much more nuanced. You know, this idea that American Muslims are part of the war, uh, the global war on terror. And you actually saw this, if I'm going to, if I can get a little bit 
political wonky <laughs> in one of the February debates do, within the Democratic I'm not a political wonk at all. In case it's not, I like <laughs> try to avoid thinking about this election and laugh like it's reality. So please educate well, me. And- so in February, you know, in the Democratic primary, one of the debates between Bernie and Clinton, um, when they talked about the question about American Muslims actually came during the foreign policy mm-hmm. segment of the the debate. And that's when Clinton, you know, began touting her famous line of American Muslims are on the front lines of terror and they know what's going on in their communities. And what really upset me was, okay, that happened. But what was so kind of poignant about that particular debate um, was that the last question or second to last question of that debate, it was kind of like a town hall um sort of format was uh, was asked by a Muslim woman who wears a headscarf. I think that she was maybe from Michigan or from Wisconsin. And her question was not about Islamophobia. It wasn't about the global war on terrorism. It wasn't about CVE. It was about how can she afford Medicare for her elderly father and will they and what will they do about Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care Act. She wears a headscarf. She has brown skin. You know, she's clearly not a white woman. And the people who actually saw that debate, saw a Muslim woman asking a question that millions of Americans also want to know. How can we provide health care to the elderly, for example? And to their credit, you know, both um, Sanders and Clinton answered that question and answered her as they would any other American. But to me, that was almost like a highlight. You know, here's a Muslim woman. She's asking something that any other American would ask. And I think that, you know, I love the Khans. I love, you know, his uncle and and (laughs) Hazal. I wasn't trying to throw shade at him, by the way. I love him so much. Totally not They're wonderful. (laughs) But I think it's really, it says something that, you know, our neighbors and our colleagues, for the majority of them, the only acceptable Muslim is a family whose son literally died for this country. You know, what about the rest of us who are just normal people who, you know, who are, you know, living our lives, who are ta- taxi drivers, who are students, who are, you know, um, activists, who are bloggers, who are teachers and who are parents? You know, do we have to literally make the ultimate sacrifice and then maybe we get some, you know, upward notches on our favorability ratings. It's also interesting to think about, like, as an African-American Muslim, right? Um, For me, like, that whole question of having to prove my patriotism to the U.S. state is, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, that's an issue, right? (laughs) Because, um, I mean, that debt, you know, um, that right to citizenship has been bought and paid for many times over. And so I'm not asking for assimilation. I'm not asking for... Um, you know, I'm not asking for citizenship, you know, in that in that way, right? There's this assumption that Muslims are um, from outside of America mm-hmm. and must somehow go through these processes, in this case, um, actually sacrificing their own son to the American state in order to be eligible for half a modicum of respect as a citizen, um, which is which is way is just extremely problematic. Um, you know, I mean, in the whole question of kind of military service, I mean, I, you know, I have an 85 year old uncle um, who served in the military um, and, you know, came back to the U.S. and was denied service <laughs> in a restaurant while he was in uniform, um, you know. And so this whole this whole question of how um, marginalized communities um sacrifice their children uh, and themselves at times to the American military, but are not 
you know, that recognition, that mutual recognition and that mutual respect, right, from from the state that has taken, you know, the ultimate uh, ultimate price from you um, still won't honor you on the most basic level. Well, you know, so just hearing you guys think about this, I mean, when I started this show, like one of my number one things that I was trying to accomplish was uh, how to take that like sort of burden of the response of like, how do we sort of improve the image of Muslims? And what we're, I'm hearing from you guys is like, you know, we, there are many levels of um, how Muslims experience American life. And many of us are just like mediocre and normal and, uh, you know, just like everyday people. But those people that are out there that are sort of, sort of participating in the, I don't know, just... The, who are on the sort of um, in the culture wars, I guess, maybe of trying to change public opinion about Muslims. You know, like, I don't disagree that if you really think about it, Khizr Khan was like a great sort of rhetorical device against um, Trump's uh, denial of like American uh, American Muslim citizenhood. Um, and to me, like, I I just feel like the, it's like Muslims have done everything that we can possibly do. You know, like what more, like you're saying, uh, Donna, like what more can we do? So my question, I guess, is then what's next for like you guys, at least? What are you thinking is your next step? Are you like, I know Hind is both Hind and I mean, everyone here is basically involved in different ways around, you know, narratives about like how to... Um, about um, narratives around American Muslims in the media and in academia and in interfaith circles. What's next for you guys? Like, how does this change your thoughts? Like what was possible for, you know, American Muslim activism writing? Like, I just, I I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm at a loss, honestly. I mean, from a media perspective, I feel like, you know, we have so many tremendous voices that are willing to speak up at various points whenever people decide that they need a Muslim voice. But I think the fundamental problem is that the frame is off. So it doesn't matter if you try to be as nuanced as possible, as amazing as possible, as articulate as possible. If the fundamental question that you're being asked is, why do Muslims think X? Or why do Muslims blow up this? Like the fact that you are being given the responsibility to answer that question is a problem. Um, And I think that it's important for the people that are creating those conversations. And I mean, you know, basically people that are in the media, then, you know, we need to think about framing those questions differently or passing on them completely, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I I partially what I'm also saying is like, it seems like uh, I, th- I agree that the framing is is poor and it can be complicated in many in in most instances. Um, but also, to me, it just seems like it seems like so much of it's so much the obligation is on on white folks to to fix their own communities. It's so funny, like so often it, there's this idea that like Muslims need to fix their own communities and their own rhetoric around violence and all that. But it's like. It's just the issue. This is a much huger issue than than what um, like what's happening in American Muslim circles. And sorry, go ahead, sorry. Oh no, I was gonna say. I mean, something that's really annoyed me today is you know I've looked at my newsfeed on Facebook and I've seen a lot of my white friends saying you know these very disparaging things about people who voted for Trump, where they're like you know you're horrible, you're awful, you've done this, you've done that, and 
I sit there and I see these posts and I'm like, you are the person who can communicate with this person who's yeah, commenting. Totally. Because maybe this person is your relative. Maybe this person is your friend. Maybe this person is your classmate. The way that you can really help in that conversation as a white ally is to be the one to have that conversation. Because I do agree with the idea that you can't just reduce everyone to being a monster. I just don't think people of color should be burdened with um, fixing that or having that that conversation. That's on white people who supposedly think that these things are a problem. Right. I, I actually agree. I think in a couple of weeks when Thanksgiving happens, you know, this is what I'm telling a lot of my white friends, you know, who are saying, how can we be allies? When you go home and you are, you know, at the dinner table with your relatives and your friends and, you know, their family friends, have this conversation. Talk about politics. And I know that Americans don't like to talk about <laughs> politics um, around the dinner table, but this isn't politics. This is life, right? I mean, every single Muslim person, Muslim parent and Latino parent that I know has been talking about literally getting in bed with their children who are crying and hugging them and holding them and telling them it's okay. I have one of my close African-American um, Muslim friends who's her family and her husband's family has been here for generations. Um, her, their, their son actually asked her mom, uh, his mom today, oh, um, it, do we have to leave the country? Right. I mean, like these are the conversations that people of color are having. So white friends, white allies, white Muslim friends, you know, <laughs> no kidding. Have, oh, yeah. Have, right. I, I'm, I'm just going to lay it out there. I mean, these are your family and, 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 and relatives. And I'm not like Sarah is saying, like, it's not that they're terrible, bad people. Like, I have to believe I have to believe that they're, you know, Trump voters are not terrible, bad people, the majority of them. But this is a conversation that must be had. This is how you can be allies. And I also want to say this in terms of framing the conversation. You know, I'm somebody who is online a lot. And, you know, I am really interested in kind of framing narratives and all of this. But this, um, you know, what we need to do, what people of color, what Muslims and, you know, immigrant communities need to do is we need to double down and, and get on the ground. We need to organize in the way that uh, makes sense. You know, for me, I do a lot of interfaith work. I think that it is incumbent upon Muslims to show our neighbors, not tell, but literally show our neighbors what our values are. We need to, um, you know, double down on who we are, what we believe. You know, the the saying of the Prophet Sallallahu that even if the world around you is falling apart and you have a seed in your pocket, you should just go ahead and plant that seed, right? Plant the tree. We just we need to do that. But you know, nobody's off the hook. I would agree and disagree or build upon it, maybe I should say. Like, I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I definitely feel like, um, you know, certainly there are always opportunities to interact with your neighbors more and whatnot. But I, but I do, I think it's important for me to state that firmly that the problem of white supremacy is a white people problem. If you think about the history of race and, and racial violence and discrimination in this country, I mean, African-American I mean, I you know, people in my family were domestic workers who raised the children, right, of the of the white people that they um, that they worked for, whether in, in whether in whether paid or not, whether they were in slavery, actually paid as a, you know, post emancipation. Um, and those people would, you know, still turn around and lynch you. Right. If if it came to that. Right. So so there's so the the, the, the idea that um that white supremacy, particularly in American society, is 
kind of ameliorated by, you know, getting to know people, I think, um, doesn't really respect the severity and the depth um, of, to which those ideas are entrenched. And it, and it's really also not about, uh, to me, and it's not about whether or not individually somebody is a bad person or a good person, like whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, and I know that's not the argument you were making, right? But just, um, but to the extent to which white supremacy is institutionalized, um, and, uh, and that's, I think, beyond what you can do at the dinner table, which is fine. You can have those conversations. But I think white people of conscience also need to think about um, and examine honestly, right, um, the places where they are experiencing privilege at an institutional level and where they are aiding and abetting the advancement of white supremacy on an institutional level. Because this is, because Trump is not... I mean, there's a there's a sense in which he because he's a he's an individual who says individually offensive things on a regular basis um, is kind of perceived as being part. You know, he's just he's just some guy who's running off at the mouth. Um, but he's he's you know, there's a, there's an institutional structure, a set of institutional structures that that enabled his rise. And this is why we are here. And if we don't address um, if we don't address racism as a systemic problem, um, then we're not going to be very successful in eradicating it. Yeah, Donna, I totally agree because one of the things that I've been uh, that I read last night uh, from some of you know the the political wonks was, wow, how did Trump win? He did not have a field, you know, he really didn't have a field operation. And then you know my response to that, a lot of other people's responses to that was his field operation was white supremacy. Like there's this <laughs> underestimation of you know the the anger and the disaffection of, of white folk and of, of a lot of white folk. And he didn't need to have a field operation. People lied to the pollsters. Yeah. They told them that they were not going to vote for him. And they ended up doing it. And it also helped uh, uphold like the sort of like liberal conception of whiteness that like it can move that there's been a forward progress as far as racism goes and that we're, you know, like we'll like, you know, there was that myth of the post, like we were post-racial uh, after o- Obama um, was elected. And um, I think it was also good, like pollsters like like to feel that way, that the dem- that the demographics had shifted a- a- away, away from white supremacy and that that was um, n- not going to be an effective mobilizing force. But clearly that was a mistake. I think something that's very important to point out is that, you know, this wasn't some kind of good versus evil movie where Hillary winning would have meant all of these things were going to go away and that Islamophobia was going to go away. Like these problems are in part very, very painful for us because people of color in this country, people from marginalized Mm -hmm. communities have been pointing out that this discrimination exists, that it's systematic, that it impacts their daily life. And it has not necessarily been acknowledged by other people around them. So, I mean, I think fundamentally these things have existed in our country for a long time. It's just we're just now starting to see it better. So let me let me just shift the conversation a little bit, because I do want to include some time to also talk about the ways you guys have done productive work on the Internet. And I think a major field in which Trump was successful is the fact that there's been this burgeoning, like, racist, alt, alt-right oh, contingent on the internet that has um, just been so successful at, at, I guess, drumming up white 
voters and white, um, like white nationalist rhetoric. Um, so I just want to talk about the role of the internet around this. Um, how do you guys experience it both dealing with uh, white folks, but also dealing within the community? Because I think all of us deal with a, a lot of stuff, you know, from multiple angles as, as a Muslim on the internet. Um, Hand, why don't we start with you? So my initial thoughts are that the internet or social media is not is not a microcosm of the larger conversations that are happening around whether it's around um, you know kind of p- politics writ large or within specifically within Muslim communities the issues that Muslim communities have uh, within themselves internally. It's not a microcosm. It's not representative, but it sort of magnifies the extreme, the the more extreme kind of um, conversations uh, and and sort of like Twitter wars and things like that. And I think you see that um, with like the alt right movement or these white nationalists online. Just I I think the anonymity uh, or the perceived anonymity of the internet allows people to be more bombastic than they normally would, even if they still hold those views in real life. Um, And, you know, as I mean, I think it's really important to not overstate the the role of, um, you know, social media. But at the same time, it really I think what it does is it kind of uh, unveils the sort of it unveils a segment of the population, not representative necessarily, but a segment of the population that is louder and can amplify their voice more than, you know, the rest of the people. How about within the Muslim community, too? I mean, obviously, there's part of it where we're talking about the way white folks engage on the Internet. But I also want to talk about the way Muslims engage with the Internet as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your um, your, your project side entrance? Yeah, sure. So sorry. So, I know, yeah, I know it's no, like but... it's a lot to talk about, but I like <laughs> I you guys are are doing such fascinating work online. It would be a shame to not ask you about it. Sure. So uh, in 2012, I started a Tumblr blog <laughs> called 2012 when we had President Barack Obama um, reelected. Um, I, I started a, a, a Tumblr blog called Side Entrance, which do- pictorially documents women's prayer spaces in mosques and um, uh, in, in this country and around the world. And my aim was to uh, sort of um, let let the world, you know, offer offer a space for catharsis for women to show, you know, to talk about, you know, some of the terrible spaces that they're in, but also to to showcase um, to showcase women's experiences in the mosque to the wider Muslim community. Most mosques are gender segregated, and a lot of um, Muslim men simply either don't know or really don't care about um, some of the unequal uh, spaces for women. And the reason I focus on space is that it's not that, you know, I want women to have um, or or that my priority is a beautiful chandelier or nice, comfortable (laughs) carpeting, um, which would be nice. But really, um, you know, the mosque in the United States is uh, can be a center for the Muslim community to come together in painful times (laughs) such as today. Um, But also it's a space for people to come together in community in good times and in bad 
And when you have um, spaces that are uh, separate and unequal for women, what you're telling women and girls is that this religion is not for you. And so, you know, I started the blog. I, I did not expect to receive hundreds and, and, and thousands of photos and stories from across the country and around the world. Um, but I have. And what I think is, um, I think the lesson to be learned here is not just that um, the issue of women's prayer spaces as being salient to Muslim communities, but also that I was able to uh, catalyze um, sort of this online discussion about women in the mosque to on-the-ground work. Um, and so I've been working with ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, and you know I served on um, a committee with the Institute of Social Policy and Understanding around reimagining Muslim spaces. And so I think the critical thing is to take the online conversation that's happening um, that is really critical and really important, and then to try to make legitimate changes on the ground that will affect women and girls and, and mosque communities across the country. I, I And I've been following that project for a long time. I think it's really, really important and something that I've always thought about because my mother was always fighting our mosque board from putting up a partition, which uh, we <laughs> yeah. didn't have for many years. And, um, you know, my mosque has been, it was a originally Nation of Islam mosque. And, you know, it was sort of there's this conflict as well between many different communities about how you know, the mosque is used. Um, anyhow, I also want to hear from Donna about uh, y- your projects and your experience on the internet. Tell us about um, Black Muslim Ramadan. So the hashtag uh, Black Muslim Ramadan um, was a Twitter uh, conversation that, that was inspired uh, for me by a couple of things. Um, one from some fieldwork experience, uh, experiences that I was doing in the anthropology uh I'm an anthropologist. So I was visiting different mosques. It was Ramadan and I was visiting places. And and I was, you know, as an anthropologist, like part of what we do is like we just kind of go and it's kind of maybe it's creepy, but we hang out with people and observe (laughs) them, (laughs) you know, and like, you know, take notes about their behavior. And so it's like, so, you know, I'm a Muslim, so I go there as, you know, part of who I am. But I'm also like, you know, usually kind of like scanning and just just paying close attention to stuff that maybe, um, you know, previous to, you know, prior to my anthropological uh, career, I'd probably maybe not pay as much attention to. It's just kind of normal background noise, but kind of becoming engrossed in some of these details, right? And it's just like, you know, this is, we actually have some, you know, we have a really special collection of, of, of traditions and things that it's worth highlighting. And there's also, there were a couple of other things going on. There was also this sense of like, I don't know, like if people have ever seen these Ramadan around the world photo um, collages that happen, like kind of, you know, New York times and the Atlantic and all of these places do every year when Ramadan is, uh, is, is imminent. Um, And it's, you know, it's really, they're usually really stunning and striking photos from, you know, mosques around the world and different things that people are doing. And I never see like a Brooklyn mosque, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and it's important for me um, as a, as an African American Muslim, um, as part of a community that has roots in the United States since before the United States was the United States, um, to actually um, highlight that and bring that to people's attention, right? And to kind of um, yeah, to, and- to think about Amer- you know, uh, you know, Islam as a part of the American fabric, right? And so, so there was that, and then it was also, um, you know, at the, the first day of Ramadan last year, in 2015 um, was the Charleston shooting. Hmm. Um, and 
as a black person, as an African-American person um, who's also Muslim. I mean, that there's this history, there's this long history of of assault on black sacred life and sacred spaces as a part of racialized terror. Um, and <clears throat> part of the, the campaign was also inspired by the need to celebrate black sacred life mm-hmm. well, in light of that tragedy. And so what did that look like on, on the hashtag? People so were basically sharing. on the hashtag, so what happened was we basically, you know, said, okay, at such and such a time on such and such a day, we're going to ask people to, to kind of come onto Twitter and show us what uh, what African American or we said black, right? Because it encompassed the diaspora. Most of the people I think participated were African Americans, um, but we had a wide array. We had Caribbean Muslims, we had Muslims, we had expats, we had people from all over the world, um, kind of chime in from every continent except you Antarctica. had Sudanese Muslims. <laughs> yeah, we had Sudanese <laughs> Muslims. We had everybody, right? Um, so people were, you know, just you know, show us what your Ramadan looks like, right? So we left it open. Um, and we got, we got all kinds of stuff. We got, we got tweets with, you know, people telling stories. We, you know, people talked about the experiences of being, um, of experiencing anti-black racism from within the Muslim community, um, not being considered real Muslims and whatever. So, I mean, you had, you had those types of conversations. You had people talking about Islamophobia. You had people, uh, talking about their social justice practices. Um, you know, people were tweeting pictures of themselves and their families, the foods that they eat, um, their, their Eid, you know, when when Ramadan's over and everybody gets all dolled up and fly for eat, right? You know, you yeah, kind of have you know everybody stunting, uh, right? You know, blackout so. eat selfies. Right, those, were so we're all... those were really amazing. I actually wrote so, yeah. about both of those things. That's how I first found yeah, out about how... Donna's. I found, yeah. you know, you sort of, in a way, also helped me be better because I think I did a roundup af- right after that, around that time, where I was like, definitely including a Brooklyn mob, definitely like <laughs> think, keeping a mind, eye on that because it's something that, you know, so many media organizations think of Muslims as, you know, looking like people like me, maybe, you know, brown guy with a beard, but it's more complicated than that, of course. And I think that's really positive work. Um, okay, so, and sorry, you, you basically, you're like on the, you're just doing the news, you're like processing so much of that news all every day, like that's sort of your job as well, like to just look at the internet conversations around news and Muslims have been popping up a lot. This is the thing that's really interesting is that, you know, it doesn't matter whether or not you practice or if you believe in anything, like if you, if you are perceived Muslim in any shape or form, so like my mm. last name is Yassin, or like, you know, obviously, you know, the Muslim community is the most important community to me mm. um, because that's what I grew up in was the mosque. Um, you know, that's going to be something I'm going to tweet about, like, let's say news coming from that community or this conversation is happening. You do have fire tweets, by the way. Thanks. Do it. <laughs> I was going to, that was part of my introduction for you, but then you weren't here. So I wasn't able to be like, she's got fire tweets. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, you know, I, I will get really, really weird Islamophobic trolls. And, you know, the thing is more than, I mean, I, okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I, I don't know. I think I think every group has a lot of horrible things that are said about them. But it's interesting to me how Muslims are so dehumanized in this country, um, mm. in this kind of general casual narrative. Like yesterday, I was just, you know, cruising Twitter. I love trolls. And, um, you know, I saw one woman describe herself on her bio as the Muslim slayer. And I was like, I was like, why is it okay to say this about Muslims? 
Because obviously, as any white dude in a fedora would tweet back at you, it's because religion is not a race. (laughs) That's probably the reason why, you know, they're going to defend that or they're going to think that, you know, when they say something back to you, it doesn't mean anything. But I've had like people tweet racist caricatures at me. Um, Oh, my gosh. What do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, just, you know, weird drawings of Arabs. Um, which I was like, you know, generally speaking, any racist drawing that involves making someone's nose really big is probably not something you should do or tweet at someone from that group. Um, I think the thing that worries me is how people of color and people from other communities end up becoming numb on social to these things because you're just, you're, I mean, what else can you do? I mean, I think a lot of people are really totally devastated by the election results. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about uh, doing self-care like now and then, you know, organizing and thinking like collecting yourself, thinking about how do you, uh, you know, organizing tomorrow. Like, does that resonate with you guys? And like, if like, if so, how and what's what's going to come next for you for you guys? We only have a little bit of time left, so. For me, I mean, in some sense, um, the the show goes on, right? Yeah. Um, if uh, you know, I'm you know, African Americans have been experiencing, <laughs> you know, I mean, everything on the spectrum yeah. for four centuries, um, and so there's a sense in which you know, like, a precarious uh, having be, being uh, embodying a precarious identity um, has is just the way it always is. And so there's always work and organizing to be done. Now, um, given the specifics of uh, what we're dealing with right now, obviously, there's going to need to be some strategizing about, okay, how do we deal under these set of conditions? Because what we do have right now is something that certainly hasn't been seen in my lifetime. Um, I mean, this is also um, worth noting, right, that Trump is the president, but there's also um, a Republican-controlled Senate and uh, and House, um, and you know, there's a likelihood that there will be some Supreme Court nominees as well during his tenure. So, so there's a sense in which so there's a sense so there's a sense in which it's like okay so even the checks and balances right that you could normally expect even under the most trying of regimes for for marginalized communities um, is like okay that doesn't really seem to be there like across the board there there has to be some consideration um, of of personal safety these are the conversations that I'm having with people this morning um, about, you know, how to keep their children safe and how to, you know, this is the conversation I had with my daughter when she left the house this morning. That's an element that's very real and, and looming for, for a lot of us right now. Yeah, definitely self-care. Um, uh, and not just physical safety like Donna was talking about. And uh, in addition to that, also mental health. Uh, I already know uh, several Muslim therapists who are, you know, just kind of having open hours, open and free hours. Yes. There is a uh, check-in call tonight. I think that's hosted by Muslim Arc. Um, that's that's open, you know, for Colin. I think people should take this time to to really kind of digest what happened and grieve and mourn. But really, I mean, tomorrow's a new day. 2018 is not that far away. I think people need to, you know, um, 
to, to organize and, and build their coalitions or go back to the coalitions that they had, I think that we'll start to see more and more people who will be shocked out of the political apathy, uh, inshallah, and, you know, hit the road. Sarah? Um, I think the the biggest thing I would say is you don't have to have conversations that you don't want to have. Yeah. Mm. So if you don't want to talk about it, if you just want to, is it still is Pokemon still cool? I don't know. <laughs> if you want, a new one is coming out in two <laughs> weeks. So yes, it's still very cool. If you know, I swear to God. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, you know, don't have conversations you don't want to have. Um, you know, that's not your responsibility and. You belong in this country, you know. We are all, you know, we're citizens. No one can take that from us. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was just given some sort of good news, I guess, that I think I would like to share with you guys, which I'm sure you guys heard about, but just something to, to some positive things to think about that uh, during this election season, uh, the first Somali-American Muslim woman, woman won mm-hmm. a state house race. Uh, Ilhan Omer, in uh, whose uh, Somali background she won in Minnesota. Um, uh, Abdullah Hamoud uh, won a, I think, was it a house uh, seat from Dearborn? That's in Michigan. And then also Pramila Jayapal was the first Desi woman elected to Congress. So there are a little, yeah, Yay. there's some good <laughs> things happening in pockets of the country. Sarah, where can people find you on Twitter and your work? Uh, you can find me on Miss Yassin. M-I-S-S-Y-A-S-I-N. Oh, that's Twitter. You can you can also you can find me also sometimes hanging out on the BuzzFeed News Twitter account, which is super cool and you should follow it. And the app. Hind, where can people find you and your work? On Twitter, find me at Hind Mekki, H-I-N-D-M-A-K-K-I, also at Side Entrance. And I also blog at Pathios at Hintrospectives because I love puns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and the Side Entrance Tumblr as well. Sideentrance.org. Donna, where can people find you and your work? Um, so I have a website, which is my name, uh, DonnaAustin.com, D-O-N-N-A-A-U-S-T-O-N, no spaces or anything, um, that houses, talks, uh, short articles, whatever, um, things that, um, that I've written and produced that are there on Twitter. Um, I mean, I have a public Facebook page, which you can find if you search my name. Um, and also on Twitter, I'm at Tiny Muslima, uh, T-I-N-Y-M-U-S. L-I-M-A-H we'll put that all in the episode description thank you guys so much for being here it was a pleasure I wish we had happier things to talk about (laughs) Um, but it's been really great having you guys thank you for thank you this episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan Nina Patak Chiquita Pascal and Megan Dietry additional production support from Tabir Akhtar Julia Furlan, Meg Kramer, and Jacqueline Sophia. Thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios and Chicago Public Media. Our music is by The Caminas. You can find them at caminas.bandcap.com. You can find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads. And I have a Tumblr also called RadBrownDads. You can find my writing at buzzfeed.com slash Email us at something at buzzfeed.com. And if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. I'm Amadeli Akbar. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. 